I'm Ed Gross, and you're listening to CloserWeekly.com's classic TV and film podcast, where we celebrate the golden age of television and movies, then and now. Sera Sera was more than just a song to the late Doris Day. In truth, it was a personal philosophy. Whatever will be, will be. She started off dreaming of being a dancer, but when those dreams were taken away following a car accident, she inadvertently discovered she could sing, at which point the would-be dancer became a singer, and a really successful singer at that. This led to Hollywood in a series of romantic sex comedies with actors like Rock Hudson, Cary Grant, and James Garner. Those sex comedies turned her into the most successful actress in the world. And then she decided to walk away from it all, barely looking back, immersing herself in animal activism, and just living life under her own terms. In this installment of the Classic TV and Film Podcast, we speak to Doris Day biographer Thomas Santo Pietro about her life and career. So I, now this, this is going to make me sound like a total dope saying this, but it's like in doing research before we spoke, it's like, of course I know Doris Day, I know her movies and stuff. Am I alone in not recognizing how substantial her recording career was? I'm probably the only dope that didn't realize how much more to her there was than the movies. Well, I think you're certainly not alone in that. And it's because, you know, she became literally the biggest movie star in the world. And that overshadowed an extraordinary recording career. I mean, it was 600, over 600 songs. And uh, I always say to people, as a singer, she was publicly praised by Paul McCartney, Sarah Vaughan, and Tony Bennett. And that's a pretty great trio to say what a great singer you are. Absolutely. You yeah. Know, it's just, uh, but, and, and the discography is amazing to me. It's like. It, 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 <laughs> it, it's extraordinary. And really what I talked about in my book is she made these concept albums for Columbia. Each one had a theme. One was uh, Broadway show tunes. One is called Day by Night, and it's just all songs about nighttime. And you listen to those, and you realize she had the most intimate singing voice imaginable. It's like you felt she was singing only to you, never to a, a, you know, a theater full of people. Right. That was her genius as a singer, was that, that sense of intimacy she, she had, which is what made Sinatra so great. You always felt he was singing to you. Right. Absolutely. You know, people give the Beatles credit for the first concept album and that sort of thing with Sgt. Pepper. But it seems like what you were just describing, it's like Doris Day had some concept albums back in the day. Oh, no question. She did, and so did Sinatra. So uh, I think, circling back to your original point, when you become the biggest movie star in the world, it, it overshadowed this incredible recording legacy. So in 2008 the Grammy Awards gave her a lifetime achievement because, you know, they understood how great she was. Right. You know, now movies weren't the goal for her originally, right? No, not at all. She really uh, fell into it. And, you know, it's, there's a story I opened my book with is that she didn't even want to audition for Hollywood and, and her test was being directed by, Michael Curtiz, the director of Casablanca. Right. So you have the biggest director in Hollywood. And all she did was cry during the screen test. And when he said to her, don't, don't you want to be a movie star? All she said was, I just want to go back to Cincinnati. <laughs> 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 Which is hilarious because her marriage was breaking up and she wanted to see her little boy. Right. And, and, but 
when he put her on test uh, on film instantly he saw the star quality you either have it or you don't and uh and she herself said which is interesting from that first moment she always felt completely at ease on a movie set she knew instinctively how to hit her marks that's pretty amazing seriously yeah yeah you know uh and and so so what but did it become instant attraction once she was doing it? Like you're saying, she had she felt it when she got there on the stage. At that moment, did she know, like, yeah, I'm going to be doing this now? Well, I think it was a gradual dawning because, you know, that this was in 1948. So the studio system was still in full effect. So you had to sign a seven-year contract. And so she signed a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers. And I think that's when she thought, oh, well, I guess I'm going to be here a while. It was all, she was never wildly ambitious. That's, that's the interesting thing. She became the biggest star in the world, never had ambition. Let's say, you know, uh, I wrote a book about Streisand. Now, Barbara Streisand was ambitious from the day she was born, (laughs) but, but, but Doris Day, she just took whatever came along, and her talent was so huge that she couldn't help but be a star. And uh, one thing you might want to say, remained so unbelievably modest about it. She, and because she, she's on film saying, and it's hilarious, she says, all I ever wanted to do was get married and have children. I ended up in Hollywood, and if I can do it, you can do it, anybody can do it. <laughs> and, of course, that's completely wrong because nobody has her talent. And, and so, but the modesty is genuine is the point of my telling you that anecdote. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And, and dancing was something very important to us. She got injured, right? I mean, wasn't that a big that's thing right. for her too? Yeah, yeah she, she was actually going to be a dancer. And uh, was in that horrible accident. She was in a car that was hit by a train. Right. And so broke her leg, couldn't even go to school. They said, you'll be lucky if you walk again. You'll never dance. And then was home convalescing and would sing along with the radio. Her favorite singer was Ella Fitzgerald. And all of a sudden, everybody realized Doris can really sing. And that was the start of it. Can you imagine accidentally just, I always, you know, it's funny. I watch talent shows, right? And I watch a guy Mm -hmm. who puts like a burning sword down his throat. And my reaction is always, how do you discover that talent? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, who the hell, (laughs) who the hell looks at a burning sword and says, you know, I'll bet I could swallow that. What? That's very funny. Right? So <laughs> so it's amazing to me that Doris Day is just like, you know, convalescing there and she just starts singing. And it's like, and, and she's the only one's not noticing that she can be a singer. Right. <laughs> it's like amazing it, it, to it, me. It, it, you couldn't make this stuff up. Yeah. You know, it really is out of a Hollywood movie. And, uh, you know, she became, it was so obvious. She started with a little dinky band in Cincinnati and then that led to, uh, Bob Crosby, which led to Les Brown. And Les Brown was a big deal, and that's where she recorded Sentimental Journey. Which really set her on the map in terms of music, right? A- absolutely, because it became such a huge hit, and she was so pretty that I think that's when Hollywood first started to pay attention. 
you know, that, that she got on the radar screen. And Rock Hudson, of course, her most famous co-star, used to tell this great story about he was in the Navy at the end of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And when they were shipping out, he said they were on the ship and they were going under the Golden Gate Bridge. So you paint that picture. And as they went under the Golden Gate Bridge on the ship loudspeaker was Doris Day singing Sentimental Journey. Wow. And he said that his phrase was, there wasn't a dry eye on the ship. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So somehow or other, they were fated <laughs> Absolutely. To, to get together. Definitely, you know, and... No, she was. She remained his friend to the end of his life, right? I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and that was, was she, a real friendship. Yeah, and had she been aware of the truth, you know, the truth, like I'm, like it's a big secret. Did they know? Did she know he was gay? Like while they were making those movies, or is that something that came out like later when he admitted it to the public? I, I it really came out later. She was. She herself, Doris, said after Rock Hudson had died uh, that she was unaware. And that she didn't care one bit. She just knew she loved her friend. Right. That's why she was so great because I don't know if you've ever seen the footage of when he was dying and she was, he was on her cable television show. I kind of remember, but it's very vague. You might want to look up. Anyway, the point is, so she had this cable television show and she wanted him to be her guest. And he was so sick at the time, but he wanted to do it for her. And it, his appearance was so shocking because nobody had seen him for a while. And, you know, he was, and, and again, the reason why I bring this up is we forget now, but you know, back in the eighties, people were afraid to be in the same room as somebody with AIDS. Oh yeah. And there is Doris day on camera hugging her friend. Right. Because that's, that's the way she thought. She thought this is my friend and, and she wanted to take care of him. What kind of impact does a gesture like that have from her on the on the public? I mean, I, I think it has a big impact, especially in those days when, again, you know, people were they didn't want to touch anybody. Oh, I remember, yeah, me, right. Yeah. And and there's Doris hugging Rock Hudson, and it's the same impact, you know, when we all saw those photos of Princess Diana hugging AIDS patients, right? When, when other people were afraid, and I think that. You know, that's when you use your celebrity to to good advantage, just the way she did with her decades of uh, activism on behalf of animals. Right. You know, because she was somebody who didn't wallow in the celebrity. Right. So if but if you're going to be a celebrity, use it for something good. Yeah, I think she she that's the other really interesting thing about her. She was completely uninterested in being a celebrity. It's why. When she walked away, uh, which was from Hollywood, uh, which was back in the 80s, she didn't have a second second's hesitation, and she was still in demand. But she said she just wanted to do other things. Right. So my phrase is, I always say, she walked away from, from the Church of Fame, <laughs> and she did it on her own terms. Yeah. And there aren't too many people who would be willing to do that. No, no. I think a lot about how Andy Warhol, you know, said in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. Right. And 
and but I think that has changed now, and now in America, everybody demands their fifteen minutes. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> I, mean, I have a friend. And, well, go ahead, go ahead. I keep interrupting. No. Sorry. And Doris walked away from it. That's all. I was yeah. Say. Absolutely. You know, I have a friend who always says his expression is like, oh, now all you have to do is think about being famous and you're famous. <laughs> and that's so right. Yep. And, and based on no accomplishment. Right. And, uh, right. And Doris, you know, uh, 39 feature films, 600 plus recordings, five years of a successful sitcom, uh, a big star on radio when she started, uh, she she is, and this is true, the only star who has triumphed on recordings, films, television, and radio, a weekly television and radio. Because when the other big Hollywood stars like Sinatra had a weekly television show that failed, yeah. and when Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda tried television, they failed. But Doris, I mean, it worked in every single medium and that that's quite a legacy absolutely and the radio show was what her singing her talking to people I and mean, what was it it, it was singing okay. you know she was uh and she was on that's where she became very good friends with bob hope she was on his radio show a lot you know we all forget that ra- radio was the television of the day oh so. yeah um and uh to this day she's the biggest female box office star in the history of hollywood Wow, that is an amazing legacy to hold, especially so many years after she stepped away. Yeah, right, right. She was, yeah, uh, I I think she didn't fully get her due as the great actress that she was uh, until I think people finally started to realize, you know, maybe 15 years ago. And they always wanted to give her the Honorary Academy Award. And she had no interest in traveling to L.A., and she said, thanks, but no. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? That Whereas is. the Grammy, they didn't demand she come there, so it was fine. Right. That's just, that's amazing. So, yeah, you know, we talked earlier about how she ended up Warner Brothers. What was the next stage, though? I mean, what do you think? She was successful in those Warner Brothers movies. What do you think elevated her, though? Well, I think... So I'm trying to uh, think of the context that'll maybe, I don't know, help with the article. I know yeah. you have to do a lot of information in, in a limited amount of space. Um, so the Warner Brother contract ran from 48 to 55. And some of the movies were good and some were terrible. But you had to do what the studio said. Right. And what happened is that even in the terrible films, the moment Doris Day started to sing, the audience was gone. It's like they just wanted to watch her and listen to her. Uh, and that's so that's what set her apart from all the other contract players uh, at the time. And, you know, in her very first movie called Romance on the High Seas, the second Doris Day starts to sing the song It's Magic, Right. which became a big hit for her, that's the second she becomes a movie star. Wow. You, the camera falls in love with her. Yeah. A- and so then, so that's seven years, and then she became an independent agent, and that's when she made her greatest films. And 
right in a, she made three fantastic movies in a row, uh, Love Me or Leave Me with James Cagney, and then uh, the Hitchcock movie, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and then The Pajama Game. So, you know, she, she's toe-to-toe with Jimmy Cagney, who said Doris Day is my idea of a great actor. And then Hitchcock, uh, which is a fantastic film, where she showed how dramatic she could be. And then this great musical comedy that was choreographed by Bob Fosse. So that, I think, all of a sudden people thought, wow, Right. There's there's a lot more to her than the, you know, some of those Warner Brothers, I call them the barnyard musicals. She was always <laughs> in overalls, jumping around, you know, and then and then she reinvented herself um, with the Rock Hudson sex comedies. And that's when she became the biggest star in the world. Right. So it was 1959 with Pillow Talk. Right. And, and I guess that did that continue to some degree? I mean, I mean, differing degrees, but with like James Garner and Cary Grant and that sort of thing, yeah. those movies she made. Exactly. Rod Taylor also. Right. And um, they James Garner had a great phrase and he called Doris the Fred Astaire of comedy. She always makes her partner look great. <laughs> It's nice. <laughs> That's a very nice thing to say. Absolutely. You know, what was it about those movies, that period, do you think that those, those sex comedies, as you put it, that that had the impact that it did and made her that giant star? Why do you think they appealed the way they did? Uh, well, I think... that's a, Believe it or not, that's actually a complicated question because... People forget now, at the time, those were daring, daring films. That's how repressed, you know, everything was. And so to see Doris and Rock Hudson having the sexually charged innuendo was startling. But where I think the real appeal was uh, is twofold. People forget in all of those movies, Doris was playing a career woman. And women lived vicariously through her because in every, she's always playing a career woman with a fantastic wardrobe, a New York City apartment the size of Yankee Stadium, which <laughs> I could never figure out how yeah. she could afford it. Really? But the point is, and she loved this life. And, and see, women responded to that because look how limited the options were at the time for women. So that she became a role model. It, it, it's funny to think about with those sex comedies, but in a way she was really ahead of her time. And at the same time, she was appealing to men because she had the, um, men thought she was sexy. And of course they wanted to go to bed with her. And at the same time, they wanted to take her home to meet mom. So Doris covered all the bases, you know, it yeah. was extraordinary. And, and that when, you know, when, as the years went by and society changed, everybody started making fun of them and, and called Doris, you know, the perennial virgin. I knew Doris Day before she was a virgin right? and Oscar Levant, but that's so wrong because that's just a misreading of the films. And it, it really, the basis of the appeal is they were fun and, she could be on screen as a as a role model. Then, you know, the film started dwindling in quality. And that's because, sadly, you know, her husband, uh, 
manager would sign her to the films because he needed the money because he had gone through her entire fortune. Without her knowing, right? Without her knowing. So when he died, you know, it's the famous story, which is really true. Her son came to her and said, I don't know how to tell you this, but you have absolutely no money. You're $500,000 in debt and you're signed to make a CBS sitcom. Jesus, what a betrayal. What a what, betrayal. Right? Unbelievable. Yeah. You know. Before we move into there, though, uh, I, I do want to ask, you said the movie started to dwindle in quality and stuff because of him signing it. Where did it change? At what point, what movie do you think it was that it started to go down? I, I think it really started to go down when she made a movie called Do Not Disturb okay. with Rod Taylor. And it just was so formulaic. And there was no sense of fun to it. And then it was kind of, she did that. She got stuck in a really horrible movie called Where Were You When the Lights Went Out? Right. And another bad movie called The Ballad of Josie. And and so, and Doris actually said in her autobiography, she would read the script and think, well, thank goodness I don't have to do this. And Marty, would, her husband, would say to her, well, actually, you do because you're signed to do it. Wow. Yeah. Now, what about with Six You Get Egg Roll, which I guess was her last movie, right? Was that a good that, one or not? I don't. I remember it being a good one, but that doesn't mean it was a good one. <laughs> no, it, it was really a fun movie. Okay. And, and what was great about it and why it's so sad she never made another one is um, <clears throat> she was playing a woman exactly her own age who had, you know, the plot was she had kids and Brian Keith had kids and they got married. And w- so with six, you get egg roll. <laughs> and, uh, oh, the Brady Bunch. Kids. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she's completely charming and relaxed. And it was so nice to see her play. She wasn't trying to play younger. Right. And uh, it would have been a whole new start for her. But that's when she kind of said, I've had enough. But was it also, from what I've read, and again, I'm basing this mm-hmm. on research I've done. Right. Was it changing more, you know, morals? Was it the changing of Hollywood, the more sexually charged uh, movies that were being made? You know, senses were lightening up and, and that sort of thing. Did that sort of drive her out in a sense, even if it was self-imposed exile? Was was that part of the reason, though, that she left? I think you, you say that very well. I think that absolutely was part of it. And I think the changing mores, and she herself said Hollywood had changed so much. The, the, the sense of the town, you know, the studio system was gone. You didn't have that sense of camaraderie. And uh, so I think that Hollywood changing along with the more permissive times that just, that didn't fit Doris. And, and that's why you've probably read that, you know, Mike Nichols wanted her to play Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate. Right. And that was not Doris. You know, she didn't, that didn't fit into her, uh, really her sense of morality. You know, an older woman seducing a young man. Right. Absolutely. So so she, you know, I think that all fed into it. And, but the, even though the feature films, so she made TV specials after that. Right. Variety specials. Yeah. So that kept her in the public eye. And then the kind of the last act of her career was the five years with the sitcom on CBS. This is uh, mid-70s now. And, you know, even though she 
wasn't aware of this sitcom, that's what saved her because that's what gave her money again. Yeah, right, because you're getting a weekly paycheck now. And, right. Uh, and I would imagine being Doris Day, it was a decent paycheck. Yeah, she, she made a lot of money from that, from that series. And, and I think, I don't know if you want to mention this, but one of the really interesting motifs of, uh, or themes of Doris's life is that she wasn't ambitious, but whenever things uh, really went wrong, like with the terrible marriages and the financial disaster, right. she went back to work, and work saved her. And she herself said that, you know, when she found out her husband had stolen her money, she was on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And she said the fact that she knew she had to get up every morning, go to the studio, and that so many other people's jobs depended on her, it saved her. Right. Again, she understood about the value of work. And uh, so she was much more complicated than people ever thought she was. Yeah. No, absolutely. You know, and it's funny, though, with the movies diminishing the way they were, it's amazing that she got a five-year run out of a TV show. Right. Right. And I think that's because, and, you know, the the, the TV show was uh, really hit and miss in terms of quality. And it was, you know, very, uh, sometimes overly sunny. But the reason why it worked is because she Doris Day was always a comforting presence. Right. You wanted to invite her into your living room on a weekly basis. And that doesn't always happen with movie stars. It's like I, you know, because I wrote a book on Sinatra, who's my other big idol. And you look at that, the footage of his TV show, he was too edgy a personality to have in your living room every week. Yeah. Right? He, he, it was almost like you felt he was going to jump through the screen. <laughs> throttle but, you. But, <laughs> right? And throttle you. But Doris was so, you know, she was just so comfortable to be around. And, and you know, there's a reason why Doris became the biggest star in the world. And that, say, a Rosemary Clooney, a fantastic singer, never became a movie star. Right. Or a TV star. It. There's a difference. You know, the camera either loves you and the audience is comfortable with you or not. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, you know, and sticking on that TV show for one more second. Yeah. It's amazing to me that from and, and again, I mean, I vaguely remember I was like eight, I think, when the show debuted. Sure. Uh, but but my, my what I've read is that it constantly changed formats. Right. I mean, that's hard for an audience to stay with the show when the format and the casting is constantly changing. That's a really good point. Wow. Because you, the audience can be put off by that. And yeah. Doris, was, you know, she started out in, on a farm. Then she moved to the big city. She had kids in the first couple seasons. Then they seemed to disappear. <laughs> she killed them. And, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> on the farm. But, <laughs> That's where the bodies are. Go ahead. I, I don't think the show would have lasted if they had stayed on the, on the farm. Yeah. Because it's what people wanted. You know, her fan base, they wanted to see Doris in a big city, just like Pillow Talk, wearing glamorous clothes, having a job. And that's what how they changed the format. And that's when it started to work. How far into the run? If you said it's a five year run, how far into the run was it before it sort of locked? Because I thought the last season really changed, too. But again, I'm just basing this on reading I had done a while ago. Well, I think 
she, they moved her to the city in the second season. Right. And the first season was all on the farm, uh, but the second season started um, in the city. And that's, I think, uh, solidified the fan base and why they stayed with it through all the, you know, the disappearing kids and, the, right. <laughs> and uh, you know, uh, and the jobs. Because with Doris's energy, they wanted to... You want her in a city setting. You you want to see her kind of charging ahead, making her way. Right. Uh, she had that really interesting mix of you could you felt she could always take care of herself, but at the same time she was so vulnerable. And that's boy, that combination is appealing to audiences. Yeah, absolutely. Although I kind of like my idea. I, I want her to be a secret serial killer. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> the, <laughs> the real Doris Day. <laughs> so, okay. That's uh, very funny. Well, I have my moments. Uh, but um, so then she leaves it behind after the show and the specials, right? Because I think the specials followed the TV show. Is that right? Uh, no, the, the specials were kind of. Um, it's almost like they were interspersed. The oh, specials okay. were also in the 70s. Okay. so but- I probably misstated about that. Um, the last movie was, I think, 68. Yeah, it should have been with Six Shake, You Get Egg Roll. Yeah, I think that was the last movie. If my and then the series started. I have to look up the exact series started year. in 68. Can- it ran from 68 to 73. That was okay. the series. And, and the TV specials, I think one was in 71. Oh, okay. And the other one was maybe 73. And uh, there's a fantastic clip you might want to see just for fun. You know, three minutes. On one of the TV specials, uh, so Google Doris Day, The Way We Were. And she sings The Way We Were with all these photographs of, you know, her co-stars, the most famous movie stars in the world. Oh, wow. And it is... So it's kind of thrilling. She looks so beautiful. And you, that song, you know, she's so intimate when she sings it. It's a, that's the thing. She, there might be something, you know, stupid in the ex, uh, you know, some silly skit. And then you get her singing right. and all bets are off. Well, that sums her up, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. Does. I think, take a look at that clip just because I think you would really like oh, it. Yeah. It's really beautiful, uh, 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 clip, and I think uh, you know she. It's an amazing legacy she left. And I, I guess the other thing I want to say is that with so she has the huge, huge professional success. In many ways, a disastrous personal life yeah. with the bad marriages, and yet, and this was part of her appeal for Doris Day. The glass was always half full, right. always, and that you know. We all like to be around people like that, or at least most of us like to be around people like that. Absolutely. You know, and, and then she, I guess she made enough money from the show where she could walk away then. Yes. She, um, and that was one good thing Marty had done, um, well, one <laughs> even though he thing. stole our money, <laughs> yeah. which is that he had negotiated the contract so that she maintained, um, she had a fantastic financial deal in terms of, you know, reruns and, and what she was paid. And that is, to speak to your point, that's what restored her and gave her enough money to walk away. Right. You know, and then what, and then what was it after that? Was it the, the deal, you know, the animal activism and that sort of thing? Is that really what occupied her time after yeah, she walked away? That, 
that that was her full time occupation because she started uh, what became eventually became the Doris Day Animal Foundation. Right, and that you know is a national. That's a big organization, and that occupied all of her time. And the only thing when she walked away in the seventies. When I talked to you about that cable TV show that Rock Hudson was on when he was so sick, uh, that was the only other professional thing she ever did. It was, I think, 85, and it was on cable, and it was really about animals. Every week there would be, you know, they would talk about horses and, and or dogs and visit. So that was the last professional thing she did. I think it was on for two years. Wow. Okay. It's funny, you know, I I just did a piece on Betty White recently in her various Uh TV shows and she had a pet show too. I mean, she had a show like that too, where, cause she's a very heavy animal activist as well. Right. And it's just so funny. You realize how many of these celebrities really support animal activism. It's kind of Loretta Swit is another one that comes to mind. Uh, Big time. And it's so, so funny that it's like such a passion for for people. And Pat, you're, you use the, the exact right word, the passion. And, you know, Doris and Betty White were really good friends. Oh, I did not know that, no. Yeah, and I think just for the reason you said, they shared this mutual love of animals. And Betty White had a great quote about Doris that I used in my book, which was Betty White said, Doris Day's least impressed fan is Doris Day herself. (laughs) That does sum it up, (laughs) right? (laughs) What we've been saying about her, that's pretty good. You know, but, uh, you know, for it's hard to say this for a 97-year-old woman, but was her death shocking to you? Or it's like, well, she was 97. I mean, it's going to happen. Uh, what? That's a really interesting question. That's a good question. Um, I knew she had started to become more frail. Uh, she was really in quite good health up, up until the end. Right. Uh, but, but, you know, moving more slowly and... and frail. Uh, but, uh, to me, I, I just wanted Dor- you know, you, I wanted Doris day to go on forever. And I, I knew it was coming, but I didn't want that day to arrive. Right. Absolutely. That makes sense. You know, it's amazing to me how like you look at certain older people. Like I had an interaction with William Shatner recently from Star mm-hmm. Trek, right? Now Shatner's 87 years old. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, 87. Wow. He is so sharp. It is amazing to me. <laughs> it oh, is that's shocking. great. Oh, my God. He's so funny, so sharp. I mean, it's just, like, amazing. So it's uh, so when I hear these people living a long time and they're still themselves, I think it's wonderful, you know? Yeah, and I think, and Doris was herself until the end. You yeah. know, this was... Uh, uh, she lived... I think she lived life on her own terms and uh, particularly, you know, after she walked away from show business and to live life on her own terms and make the world a better place that, you know, you can't ask for a better legacy than that. I don't think so. (laughs) I think that's a pretty good one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tom, unless there's anything else you want to get in there, I think I think we're good. I mean, you know, there, there, I'm sure there's tons more we could talk about, but I think we've encapsulated it pretty good here. You know, the only other thing I can really say to you is, and this is kind of uh, an elegiac note, but Doris Day 
exemplified the mid-20th century American optimism. The, I call it the, the hands-on hips, you know, roll up the sleeves, we can solve any problem. And we're never going to see the likes of Doris Day again, and we're never going to see that America again. And that's the elegiac note for me. Absolutely. You know, oh, at one point I wanted to make earlier, I forgot to. Yeah. I was watching clips of, you know, the Today Show was doing a retrospective of her, and they showed a clip from The Man Who Knew Too Much. How the hell Kesarasara came out of an Alfred Hitchcock movie? I have no freaking clue. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's amazing. That- it's like, how is that possible? I mean, I think well, Norman and- Bates and the Birds, not not Kesarasara. <laughs> I know, but when they first played the song for Doris, she didn't like it. Really? She said, "Well, this is a kids' nursery song. I, you know, I, I'm not interested in this." But you know, not only did it become this enormous hit that became her signature song, but she ultimately grew to embrace the lyrics of that song, whatever will be, will be, right. as her personal philosophy in life. Wow. Because it's how she was able to cope with all of the ups and downs in her personal life. She just kept moving forward and thought, okay, there's a purpose to everything. I have to keep moving forward. So I, I think it's fascinating that what at first she didn't like became her signature song and her personal philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, and now of course the song is living on on commercials. I forget what what the product is even, but there's there's a commercial that has yeah. Kesara Sara. Everyone's that's singing. Exactly. Yeah. What is that? I can't I remember what the product like. is. I just know the song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you that when I wrote the book, she. Um, you know, Doris didn't do interviews, and yeah. but when the book came out, late one night the phone rang and it was Doris. Oh, really? Yeah, and it we had this extraordinary talk for an hour, and because she was so happy with the book, and I'm not at all saying you know because I'm such a good writer because I never say that, but. But it was because it was the first book to take her seriously as an artist. And the, the point of my bringing this up to you, and here's the point of the anecdote, is that the image you saw on screen, she was even nicer on the phone. Right. This was such a good person. And I think that's why people still... Long after she had retired, she still had this immense fan base because people understood that. Right. Absolutely. You know know who I think is nicer, though, I have to say, based on an anecdote I was told? Uh, Again, I go back to Betty White, the guy who wrote a book about the Golden Girls. He he came to her house and had run late and he really had to go to the bathroom. And he Mm -hmm. said to her, he goes, Miss White, I'm so sorry. He goes, can I possibly use your bathroom? She goes, I'm sorry. I'm so nice. I don't have a toilet. You'll have to go down to the gas station down the street. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so nice. I don't have a toilet. (laughs) That's really funny. That's a great story. (laughs) I wish it was mine, but it's a great story. And she and she probably said this at age ninety, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it was I mean, I don't know how old she was, but she's definitely yeah. up there. Yeah, for sure. It was after the Golden Girls finished and stuff, so it was certainly in the nineties, at least. Uh, you know, the early two thousands. Uh, I just thought that was a great. That's a great. That is story. a fantastic story. Yep, absolutely. So I'm sorry, Doris. You're very nice, but you have a toilet. <laughs> Betty White apparently does not. So sorry. <laughs> 
We'd love to walk around singing K-Sara Sara, but we can't. Not yet. Not until you subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends about us, and give us a five-star review. Actually, we promise not to sing if you do all of that. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.